adventure into fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. I couldn't let the first season of Fado pass without some King Arthur, could I? Honestly, I don't even know how many episodes the first season will be, or what a season even means for me just yet. I do have plenty of things I'm working on for you, and I'm still trying to really nail down how to best release it all, but that's a topic for another time. This week, I want to take you a step away from fairy tales and a step toward folklore. And yet, this one tends to blur the line between the two. Arthur Pendragon, the greatest king Britain has ever known, walks the line between myth, legend, folklore, fairy tale, and history. Many people will insist that he was a real person with real historical contributions who lived and led in the 5th and 6th centuries, and many others will claim just as strongly that he is entirely fiction. I really think that it's the ambiguity that makes him all the more intriguing. Whether Arthur is real or not, he is a perfect addition to Fido as far as I'm concerned. My plan with Arthur is to cover the various different tales of his life and rule individually, occasionally just returning to him as a sort of recurring character here on the show. I think that's the best way to go about it, instead of, say, reading the entirety of Lamorte d'Arthur in one sitting for you. I don't know if any of us has that kind of time. We're going to start with Arthur's birth and how he ascended to become king which you may know already, but maybe not in its entirety. This tale got the Disney treatment in 1963, and you know it as the Sword in the Stone. Today, I'm reading to you from a book of retellings from the 1920s that draws from Le Morte d'Arthur, as well as the Mabinosian, both of these texts being from Britain's late medieval period, the 13th to the 15th centuries. As always, there's more to come after the story, and I will meet you there. And now, as retold by Beatrice Clay in Stories from Lamorte d'Arthur and the Mabinosian in 1920, of Arthur's birth and how he became king. Long years ago, there ruled over Britain a king called Uther Pendragon. A mighty prince was he, and feared by all men. Yet, when he sought the love of the fair Igraine of Cornwall, she would have naught to do with him, so that from grief and disappointment Uther fell sick, and at last seemed like to die. Now in those days there lived a famous magician named Merlin, so powerful that he could change his form at will, or even make himself invisible. Nor was there any place so remote but that he could reach it at once, merely by wishing himself there. One day, suddenly, he stood at Uther's bedside and said, Sir King, I know thy grief, and I am ready to help thee. Only promise to give me, at his birth, the son that shall be born to thee, and thou shalt have thy heart's desire. To this the king agreed joyfully, and Merlin kept his word, 
for he gave Uther the form of one whom Igraine had loved dearly, and so she took him willingly for her husband. When the time had come that a child should be born to the king and queen, Merlin appeared before Uther to remind him of his promise, and Uther swore it should be as he had said. Three days later a prince was born, and, with pomp and ceremony, was christened by the name of Arthur, but immediately thereafter the king commanded that the child should be carried to the postern gate, there to be given to the old man who would be found waiting without. Not long after Uther fell sick, and he knew that his end was come. So, by Merlin's advice, he called together his knights and barons and said to them, My death draws near. I charge you, therefore, that ye obey my son, even as ye have obeyed me, and my curse upon him if he claim not the crown when he is a man grown. Then the king turned his face to the wall and died. Scarcely was Uther laid in his grave before disputes arose. Few of the nobles had seen Arthur or even heard of him, and not one of them would have been willing to be ruled by a child. Rather, each thought himself fitted to be king and, strengthening his own castle, made war on his neighbors until confusion alone was supreme, and the poor groaned because there was none to help them. Now when Merlin carried away Arthur, for Merlin was the old man who had stood at the postern gate, he had known all that would happen, and had taken the child to keep him safe from the fierce barons until he should be of age to rule wisely and well, and perform all the wonders prophesied of him. He gave the child to the care of the good knight Sir Ector to bring up with his son Kay, but revealed not to him that it was the son of Uther Pendragon that was given into his charge. At last, when years had passed and Arthur was grown a tall youth, well skilled in knightly exercises, Merlin went to the Archbishop of Canterbury and advised him that he should call together at Christmas time all the chief men of the realm to the great cathedral in London. For, said Merlin, there shall be seen a great marvel by which it shall be made clear to all men who is the lawful king of this land. The archbishop did as Merlin counseled. Under pain of a fearful curse, he bade barons and knights come to London to keep the feast and to pray heaven to send peace to the realm. The people hastened to obey the archbishop's commands, and from all sides barons and knights came riding in to keep the birth feast of our Lord. And when they had prayed, and were coming forth from the cathedral, they saw a strange sight. There, in the open space before the church, stood on a great stone, an anvil thrust through with a sword, and on the stone were written these words, Whoso can draw forth this sword, is rightful king of Britain born. At once there were fierce quarrels, each man clamoring to be the first to try his fortune, none doubting his own success. Then the archbishop decreed that each should make the venture in turn, from the greatest baron to the least knight, and each in turn, having put forth his utmost strength, failed to move the sword one inch, and drew back ashamed. So the archbishop dismissed the company, and having appointed guards to watch over the stone, sent messengers through all the land to give word of great jousts to be held in London at Easter, when each knight could give proof of his skill and courage, and try whether the adventure of the sword was for him. Among those who rode to London at Easter was the good Sir Ector, and with him his son Sir Kay, newly made a knight, and the young Arthur. When the morning came that the jousts should begin, 
Sir Kay and Arthur mounted their horses and set out for the lists. But before they reached the field, Kay looked and saw that he had left his sword behind. Immediately, Arthur turned back to fetch it for him, only to find the house fast shut, for all were gone to view the tournament. Sore vexed was Arthur, fearing lest his brother Kay should lose his chance of gaining glory. Till, all of a sudden, he bethought him of the sword and the great anvil before the cathedral. Thither he rode with all speed, and the guards having deserted their post to view the tournament, there was none to forbid him the adventure. He leapt from his horse, seized the hilt, and instantly drew forth the sword as easily as from a scabbard. Then, mounting his horse and thinking no marvel of what he had done, he rode after his brother and handed him the weapon. When Kay looked at it, he saw at once that it was the wondrous sword from the stone. In great joy he sought his father, and showing it to him, said, Then must I be king of Britain. But Sir Ector bade him say how he came by the sword, and when Sir Kay told how Arthur had brought it to him, Sir Ector bent his knee to the boy, and said, Sir, I perceive that ye are my king, and here I tender you my homage. And Kay did as his father. Then the three sought the archbishop, to whom they related all that had happened, and he, much marveling, called the people together to the great stone, and bade Arthur thrust back the sword and draw it forth again in the presence of all, which he did with ease. But an angry murmur arose from the barons, who cried that what a boy could do, a man could do. So, at the archbishop's word, the sword was put back, and each man, whether a baron or knight, tried in his turn to draw it forth, and failed. Then, for the third time, Arthur drew forth the sword. Immediately there arose from the people a great shout, Arthur is king! Arthur is king! We will have no king but Arthur! And, though the great barons scowled and threatened, they fell on their knees before him while the archbishop placed the crown upon his head, and swore to obey him faithfully as their lord and sovereign. Thus Arthur was made king and to all he did justice, righting wrongs and giving to all their dues. Nor was he forgetful of those that had been his friends, for Kay, whom he loved as a brother, he made seneschal and chief of his household. And to Sir Ector, his foster father, he gave broad lands. And so Arthur's legacy begins. Britain's Greatest King and His Humble Beginnings You know, I've always wondered what it was that made Arthur worthy of that sword, and I think the answer is this. He was the first one who tried to pull the sword free, who meant to use it for someone else's benefit and not his own. It seems like everyone else is trying to pull the sword free and wants to claim power for themselves, while Arthur is simply trying to come to the aid of his foster brother. I think it's also likely, since the stone appeared in a churchyard on Christmas Eve, that it's meant to say that Arthur was divinely destined to be king. It occurs to me that Thor's hammer, also a famous medieval weapon in its own right, may have a similar will to stay put when the unworthy attempt to pick it up. Now, I looked into the real-world legends of Thor's hammer, Mjolnir, and I couldn't find references to that particular property, so it looks like Marvel Comics added it to their version of the weapon. I'm guessing that they were influenced by the sword and the stone from the stories of Arthur. Now, you're probably familiar with Excalibur, the powerful weapon that Arthur is well known to have wielded. 
but the sword in the stone is probably a different sword. Well, maybe. The sword in the stone is called Caliburn in a later telling of the story, but in Le Mort d'Arthur, it's not given a name, it seems. There are as many versions of this story as any centuries-old fairy tale, and so it's difficult to nail down an authoritative version. But looking around at different sources and theories, the one that is the most cohesive to me is that the sword in the stone, Caliburn, was at some point during Arthur's reign broken. And at that point, Merlin gave it to the Lady of the Lake, who reforged it and gave it back to Arthur, with its new name, Excalibur. There are a lot of different ideas about what the names of these swords mean, most related to how well it was able to cut hard materials. At some point, if it's the same sword, it changed from Caliburn to Excalibur. Now, in my simplified view of the legend, here's what I think really happened. Caliburn, or Caliburnus, in the history of the kings of Britain from 1136, is the Latinized version of a compound Welsh word meaning hard cut or hard breach. Now, stay with me. If, if the sword was broken and reforged and given a new name, well, do you know the Latin word that means out of or from? If you guessed X, you'd be correct. So, if you were to remake Caliburn into something new, you might call it out of that which cuts hard, or Excaliburn. Just a flight of fancy that's too cool to ignore, if you ask me. So, we'll get to Excalibur, along with a lot of other stories about Arthur, his knights, his rule, and of course, his death. I could take it as chronologically as I'm able, but if you have a favorite Arthurian story, let me know. Thank you once again for listening, and if you're having fun, then follow me on your platform of choice. I'm on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And be sure to leave me a review. Come and find me on Facebook and Instagram as well. I'm at Fado Podcast. And also, you can email me directly at fadopodcast at gmail.com, and I might even be able to read your comments on the air. All right, that about wraps up this week's episode. So watch for episode 10 on July 26th. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time.